Welcome to Carnegie Free Church. Welcome to those who are watching online at carnegiefree.com. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us today. Are you excited for Thanksgiving? I love Thanksgiving. It's just like the best holiday, not encumbered by all the materialism. It might be my favorite holiday. And I pray it's such a rich time for you and your family, your friends, as you gather together and enjoy a special meal and just give thanks. God's been good to us, right? God has been so good to us. We have so much to be thankful for, even through the ups and downs, which we all inevitably have faced over this past year. We have much to give thanks to God for and glad to do that this week. Don't you love that video that our team put together? There's something like really beautiful about those images with that voiceover and just imagining what you would have felt in those moments on Good Friday. There's something haunting about that, yet at the same time beautiful at the same time. Do you ever ask yourself this question, where would I have been on that Good Friday? I ask myself that question sometimes because there were different kinds of people who reacted in different ways on that sun-soaked Friday afternoon in A.D. 33 when Jesus was murdered on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. Where would you be? Perhaps we would have been with the disciples, those original 12 who got fearful at this moment, and understandably so, they see the one that they've been following who's now crucified, and they also wonder if they'll be questioned by the state next. And so they go into hiding, likely in that upper room. They're fearful while their Savior is on the cross, and maybe I would have been there. Or maybe I would have been amongst the crowds of people. Crucifixion, you might know, was a public event. It was a spectacle that the crowds would come out and they would watch. They'd bring their families to see those criminals hanging desperately on a cross. Maybe we'd be amongst that wide crowd of people that would have been there on Good Friday. In that group, of course, were some of the Jewish authorities who yelled just the day before, crucify him, crucify him. And there, then there were these soldiers who were gambling for his clothes, mocking him as they did so. I hope I wouldn't have been a part of their company, but Jesus said some things that weren't too comfortable for them, and he said some things that aren't too comfortable for us. There's another group of followers, a different group that I hope I would have been a part of. They were five very faithful friends who stuck with Jesus till the very end. And in his darkest hour, they said, we are going to be there with our Savior. Even if it means that we will be attacked, even if it means that we might be persecuted, they chose to stay with him till the very bitter end, such that he would not die alone. We pick up their story within a short passage in John chapter 19. If you want to turn there with me right now, you'll find John 19 after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you turn over to the book of Acts, you've gone just a little bit too far. Turn back to your left. 
But John 19 is the crucifixion narrative of Jesus' final hours, and Jordan did a great job uh, portraying the crucifixion in his message last week, which concluded with those beautiful words of Jesus, it is finished. There's nothing that we can add to the work that God has done for you and me. But within that narrative is this beautiful little interaction between Jesus and two people that he loved very dearly. And we're going to look at that today, starting at verse 23 of John 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So Jesus had these outer garments, and these four outer garments that he had on. They're gambling for those, each taking those. But then he had an undergarment. He stripped naked And that was a seamless tunic. We'll talk about that later. One piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothes. This is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, five of them standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this beautiful episode and uh, just the power of your love for your disciple John and your mother Mary, even as you're being crucified. And uh, we see the, the beauty of a son's love for his mom. Father, would you bring us into this passage today that we could even imagine ourselves there and And perhaps think about how we would respond and what you would have us do and even an application or two that we would take from this beautiful interaction between Jesus and John and Mary. Father, all of us have different things that we're thinking about this morning. And so we ask together, humbly, that you would focus our attention on this short passage. Help us to listen to your words and perhaps begin to apply them to our lives. Thank you for their beauty. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus, of course, is recognized as a brilliant teacher across every generation and I found across every culture. Many people that I've known over the years who practice different religions at least still see Jesus as a brilliant teacher. And if you read the parables of Jesus, you cannot come to another conclusion except that he was an absolutely brilliant teacher. Whatever you believe today, we would agree on that. But please notice in this passage, as Jesus is providing for his mother and for this disciple, he's not teaching, is he? Like he's not leading a Bible study, he's not giving special instructions for the world. 
He's not dividing an Old Testament passage that was difficult for people to understand. He's not turning over the self-righteousness of the Pharisees as he was wont to do. He's not doing any of those things. He's not teaching. What he's doing is loving. What you see him doing is providing in this hour of need for his mother and a disciple whom he loved deeply. You see here the spectacular love of the Savior as he's unjustly strapped to the ancient equivalent of an electric chair. And here he is looking around, providing for everyone around him. Indeed, if you look at the crucifixion narratives in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see other ways that he provided for a number of other folks that were near him in this moment. Amazingly, as these soldiers are gambling for his clothes, you remember that he looks up to heaven and he looks down to them, he looks up to heaven and he says, Father, would you please forgive them for they know not what they do. Wow. Jesus providing from the cross. Likewise, another one of the gospels records that there's two criminals on either side of Jesus who did terrible crimes, and they are likewise being crucified for what they did, and one of them continues to mock Jesus, but, but the other one says, would you please remember me? I think I believe in you. I don't know all the answers, but would you please remember me when you get to your heaven? And what does Jesus say? That's right, brother. Surely today you will be with me in paradise. And then to his mother and to his dear friend John, behold your mother, behold your son. Like regardless of which crowd we would have found ourselves in back in 33 AD on that very bad Good Friday, Jesus would have been merciful to us. This is the unfathomable love of God extended to the world. Here specifically to a few people right in front of him, he is so merciful. You see it in this passage that he extends his love to those right in front of him, whether they're enemies or his mother. He's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. This is the character of our loving God. Like Think about the portrait of Jesus providing for his mother. This is the context The scriptures say that Jesus' brothers were embarrassed by the kinds of things that Jesus claimed about himself. Maybe you know that Jesus had four half-brothers, and two of them eventually became his followers, Jude and James, and they wrote short letters that made their way into our New Testaments. But first, James and and Jude were skeptics of Jesus, and presumably his other brothers continued to be skeptics of Jesus. I kind of get it, like if my brother claimed to be God incarnate, I would be curious, what are you talking about? Well, that's what he was doing. He says, I am the great I am. I am God incarnate. I am the son of God who has come to redeem the world. They didn't know what to make of their brother Jesus. They saw him doing all these different miracles, but now they see him on the cross and they say, well, he can't save himself. He must not be all that he said he was. This became a wedge within their family. So they're not with Mary at the cross. In fact, in all likelihood, they've basically said to Mary, if you're going to go with him, then we're not with you. Mary was abandoned for her faith in Christ. 
Jesus was abandoned. He was betrayed. He was rejected. He was arrested. All of that. I think sometimes we misunderstand the intensity of the pain of crucifixion for Jesus by, hear me now, by only emphasizing the physical elements of what he experienced. The physical elements were, of course, grave. He was flogged 39 times, probably on at least two occasions. He was brought to an inch of his death even before he got on the cross, and the cross was excruciating pain. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It was intentionally as painful as possible. It was all of that, but perhaps we don't think enough about the relational and the emotional weight of what Jesus went through on the cross. Like his friends are not there, they've left him, and his brothers are nowhere to be found, and he's saying goodbye to his mother. And Christian theology teaches that God the Father chose to turn his face away from God the Son for those three dark days such that he would never turn his face away from us. He would never look away from us. Jesus was separated from the love of God for those three dark days so that you never would be. This is the gospel message, and he held the weight of all of that on his broad shoulders while he hung on the cross. Biblical scholars have suggested that Joseph likely died years before. Uh, Jesus and brothers are mentioned a number of other times in the Gospels, but after Jesus' adolescence, you never hear Joseph's name again. So in all likelihood, he has died And Mary is now a widow, again, just thinking about the situation that she's in. Her other sons are not around. She is not a woman of a lot of means. She doesn't have much. What she does have is her son, Jesus. And now she fears at the cross she's losing even him as well. They didn't have much financially either. Jesus was born into poverty, and you might remember, it's worth noting at this time of year as we look forward to Christmas, that when Jesus, when Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and they offered a gift, a sacrifice of sorts to say thank you to God. The custom in Israel at that time was when you had a firstborn Jewish son, you'd go to the temple and you'd offer a gift, a sacrifice to God to say thank you for your provision to your God. Do you remember what that gift was supposed to be? Anyone? It was a lamb. So customarily, families would bring a lamb to to the temple as a sacrifice to say thank you to God for this tremendous gift that God has given. What did Mary and Joseph bring to the temple? Anyone remember? A couple turtle doves. Because the Old Testament had provision for impoverished families, God in his mercy always made provision for lower income families that if it could not afford a lamb, they could scrape their pennies together and bring two turtle doves, two pigeons to the temple and give that as an offering, giving thanks well once again for the gift of their newborn son. And that's what Mary and Joseph provided. In all likelihood, Mary, being a disciple of Jesus, is walking with Jesus and she doesn't have much. Her husband is passed. And so they are living off the benevolence of other disciples who happen to have more financial means. Some had more, others amongst the disciples had less. Jesus, in fact, warned future disciples of this. He said, You want to come follow me? Please understand this about the one that you're going to follow. He says to them, Foxes, have dens, and birds 
have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And so he warns his future disciples, you are most welcome to follow me, but I promise you it will not be for any financial gain. Mary and Jesus had very little, but once again, what Mary had was her son. And so the heartbreak in this moment that he is going to, it was customary in ancient Israel that a Jewish mother would weave together a tunic for her son. And the tunic was a specially designed garment that he would wear at all times underneath his outer garments, whatever they might be. And a tunic was typically a coming-of-age gift for a young man as he enters into adulthood. Maybe in our culture, you think of like a quinceanera in Mexican culture or a bar mitzvah in contemporary Jewish culture, or maybe you took your son out for a hunting expedition when he became a man. Or maybe you gave your son a sword or you did something special for your daughter when it was clear to you that she was becoming a woman. I remember my mother, when I was 17 years old, she said, you're a man now, Adrian, you need to learn how to dress like a man. And that meant she took me out for my first suit. And she took me over to Dillard's, and if you, you don't know my mom, but she's this wonderful Italian woman, and she's a way better talker than I am. And we went in and talked to this tailor, and she kind of gave the tailor very specific directions. This is an important suit. This is his coming-of-age gift. He needs to learn how to go do an interview and prepare for college and everything else, and this needs to be just so. So take a little bit more off here and a little bit more off there, and no, that's not quite right. It's got to be just perfect. I still have that suit. I look at it in the closet, and I love that suit because my mom gave that to me special when I was 17. Not sure if I can fit in it anymore. But I love that suit. That's the tunic. That's the tunic that Mary has woven for her son Jesus. That's the tunic that the soldiers are now throwing dice for. This tunic held more value to the soldiers throwing dice for that than the Savior of the world held value to them. I can imagine as Jesus and Mary are watching this whole thing go down that perhaps they see this gambling for their keepsake and they exchange a glance at one another and their hearts sink to the ground. Probably a risky move for Mary and John and Mary Magdalene and the other ladies to stand in unity with Jesus at this moment. You know they're all Jews, and in the next episode of the story over in the book of Acts, in just a few pages, they're all going to be persecuted for their faith in Jesus, and the authorities are going to come hunt them down as well, but there they are standing in unity with Jesus at his darkest hour. I love the way author and theologian A.W. Pink puts it as he comments on Mary's pain. Listen to this. She is the dying man's mother. She it was who first planted kisses on that brow now crowned with thorns. She it was who guided those hands and feet in their first infantile moments. No mother suffered as she did. His disciples may desert him and his friends may forsake him, but his mother stands there at the foot of the cross. Oh, who can fathom a mother's heart? 
She's an ordinary woman with an extraordinary faith. She loves her son. Her son is also her savior, and she's standing in solidarity with him as he stands in solidarity with her. Again, in all likelihood, there's no one left to provide for her. Husband's gone, brothers have fled. And so what does Jesus do? He does what we would do. He looks to his spiritual family to provide help. John, son of Zebedee, had no kinship tie to Mary and Jesus, but Jesus looks at John and says, you take care of my mother. It's much the same as what we hope we would do through our life group system here at this church. I'm not saying we get it right 100% of the time, but I am saying that family in the body of Christ is really intended to be a big thing. And hopefully our life groups are becoming the kinds of places that are genuinely safe with one another. And if one person in a life group has a need, other people in a life group would say, how can we help provide for that need? That's what's going on here but between Jesus and John and his mother. If you're following along your outline, it's a really, really simple message today. The passage has this one main idea and then one application though that I'm gonna give. Here's the main idea, it goes like this. Jesus' sacrificial love covers all people, but one at a time. Let me say it again. Jesus' sacrificial love is this way. It, it's pervasive enough, it's powerful enough. The blood of Christ fought from the cross is comprehensive enough to cover all seven billion people across this world, but it comes to us one at a time. You see, God chooses to penetrate the human heart much in the same way as we would penetrate the human heart. He comes to us and he seeks a personal relationship with us. He seeks to enter in and he loves us individually. This is precisely why Jesus is able to say things like, come to me, all of you, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, any of you, any individual amongst us today who is weary and burdened by the pains of life, come to him and we will find rest in his presence. This is exactly what was going on but between Jesus and John in this moment. Look at verse 26 and 27 once again. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, woman, here's your son. He will take care of you. And to the disciple, here's your mother. She will love you like a mother. And listen to John's response. From that time on, this disciple whom Jesus loved took her into his own as his own. Yeah, I treat you as my mother. John mans up, doesn't he? Like he puts on a tool belt and he gets going on that addition to the adobe house. He says, I need to add an extra little room and put another plate on the table. And he loves sacrificially for Mary. Why do you do that? He did it because he understood the sacrificial love of Jesus for him. He had so internalized the sacrificial love of Jesus for him that he naturally overflowed with love toward other people. And the simple truth is you cannot give away what you do not have yourself. And so John has this in himself so much so that he describes himself as, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. How'd you like to say that about yourself? Sounds a little bit cocky, doesn't it? Hi, my name's Adrian. I'm the one Jesus loved. Like, how does that sound? Okay, it's not cocky. It's confident. He has resolute confidence in this. I am personally adored. 
personally beloved by Jesus Christ my Lord. And I've received such love from him that it's transformed my identity and out of what he has given to me, I cannot help but give his sacrificial love to others as well. Now listen to the way John puts it just a few years later as he's reflecting upon Christ's love, perhaps still providing for his mother Mary. 1 John 3.16 puts it this way. Many of us have memorized John 3.16. We should also memorize 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Mm. Isn't that good? Let's read that together. Would you join me? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Man. Like, I mean, the church can do hundreds of things. The church can do so many different activities. But like, if the church isn't doing this, the church ain't the church. This is the church. To sacrificially love for others, starting just one person at a time. Here's an application that you might consider today. Love invites people near, and love provides in practical ways. Love invites people near, and love provides in practical ways. You see someone in a dark hour, and you just choose, I'm going to get up close with that person. I'm going to invite that person near. I'm going to give them a hug when they're hurting. I'm going to extend myself in such a way that I will listen to their sorrowing story, even though it's difficult to, to listen to people's sorrowing stories at times. I'm going to choose to get up close to this person and provide them with the community that they need right now. One of the things that I love most as a pastor is when we leave this room and go out into the lobby way and I see people listening to each other's stories and not just listening but then choosing to put their hands on the person that just shared the story and pray for them. That's what love does. It says, let's take this pain that you're in and let's bring this to our Father in heaven and I care about you and I want to check in with you later and I actually am invested in your life. I'm willing to draw near to you and then provide in practical ways. Like, can you think of someone who did that for you at an hour of need? When you were sick, when you were brokenhearted, when you went through a relational pain of some kind, you lost someone that was dear to you, and someone stepped in the gap in that moment of need. Do you remember? My guess is you will never forget that person. Because that demonstration of love in our hour of need, of bringing us near and helping us in practical ways, it speaks to the deepest recesses of our hearts. I remember 12, 13 years ago as <clears throat> my former church was starting up our homeless ministry there, and we were bringing homeless people into the church, and I was in an elder board meeting, and one of our elders was named John. And John was an oil executive and very wealthy and a super nice man. But he just interrupted our meeting at one point as we were talking about the homeless folks that were joining us for worship. And he said, Adrian, I know this is what Jesus would have us do, but can I just be honest with you and tell you I have no idea how to talk to these people? So Adrian, can you please give us some counsel on how we talk to these people? And I said, John, 
You talk to these people the same way you talk to anyone. You look them in the eyes, you shake their hand, you ask their name, you listen to their stories, you share your own, you show them that they matter to you for this moment. And John went ahead and did that. And four or five weeks later, I remember going down to the cafe and I'd start to see this regular pattern that in the cafe, there was John around a round table with four or five other men and women who had come over from the Boulder Homeless Shelter and they each have cups of coffee in their hands and there's John with this huge smile laughing with each of these men and women, oftentimes praying with them, not trying to fix them, nor trying to judge them. Not the goal. Simply loving them. And what they experienced was having their greatest need being met. The greatest human need is this. It's to belong. It's to realize that I matter. To realize that there's a place that would be safe for me here. That I may be rejected everywhere else, but here I am loved. And that's what John and that's what so many other people gave to these individuals who were coming over from the shelter. And I pray that's what we would give as well. It's not about giving handouts. That's not what we're about. It's about offering the gift of love consistently week after week such that people who go all over the place and rarely feel safe anywhere would come into the family of Christ and be able to sit down and have a cup of coffee and take a deep breath and say, I'm safe here. I can relax here. They actually care about me as opposed to judging me here. They say every person matters and they live every person matters. Now, friends, there's a hundred different ways well we can do this. And what I would encourage you to think about here as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas is just to ask yourself and even have family discussions about how you as a family will do this. Like for some, it's going to be inviting an international student over to your house for Thanksgiving or for Christmas and then teaching them the beauty of those Christian holidays who perhaps have never heard the message of those holidays and bringing them near and providing love in very practical ways. For others, it will be someone on your block that you know is a single mom and doesn't have any family around and you invite them in for Christmas. Perhaps it's a widow, though, that you know, or perhaps there's folks at a local nursing home, though, that you know, and you know how lonely people in nursing homes are right now. And so you check... You just decide, we're going to take a couple hours out of our schedule to go and visit them because God invites us to sacrifice some of what we want to go love in practical ways. Perhaps it's taking this little handout that was referred to today and you fill out the bottom of that and you say, I'd like to be a part of the hospitality team when we start bringing homeless folks here in January. I'd like to be a part of the driving team when we start driving people here in January because I want them to know that they matter. I don't know what it will be for you, but I encourage you to pray about it because the sacrificial love of Jesus comes in, and once it gets a hold of you, you can't help but give it out. Hear the words of Christ. I was hungry, 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came, and you looked after me. I was a stranger with nowhere to go, and you invited me in. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you can be confident that you did it for him. This is the love of our Savior. He provides sacrificially for the entire world one at a time, and then he provides individually for us as we draw near to him. John heard this message, and he became a one-man men-in-action team for Mary. And Mary, in turn, cooked him the very best falafel sandwiches she could. And they enjoyed great fellowship together. Because Jesus said, Dear woman, this is your son, and my son, this is your mother. How is Jesus provided for you? How is Jesus sacrificed for you? The more you meditate on that, the more you're going to have the love of God naturally coming out of you, and you'll be forced to ask the question, God, who's the one that you want me to sacrifice for even this holiday season? Let's pray together. I wonder what God's telling you right now as we take just a moment of silence. Is there something that the Holy Spirit might be whispering to you at this moment? Jesus, we're so grateful for your sacrificial love. You give yourself for the world us included. You provide for individuals, us included. I love the way you loved your mother, and I love the way you loved your friend John. And I pray, God, that you would forgive me for the ways that I care mostly about my comfort and my pleasures, and you get me out of myself that I would love sacrificially the way Jesus did, that I would invite people near, and I would look for ways to provide emotional encouragement and even sacrifice out of all that I have. Father, I pray for my friends in this room. Maybe they're in a similar spot as I am as we reflect upon this beautiful episode in Jesus' death. Maybe the Lord's whispering something to you right now. I just encourage you to do that. The best course of action is whatever Jesus tells you to do, do that. We thank you for the example of the disciple John. Father, thank you most of, most of all that you, uh, you took our sins from us. You put them on Jesus' strong shoulders, that you don't look at our sins anymore. You don't count them against us, but it's your reckless love that brings us into your family. Thank you, God, that you've made us your children. May we live like that even this week. In Christ's name, amen.